Today's episode is sponsored by By Heart, which is an infant nutrition company built from the ground up to deliver real innovation on behalf of babies and parents. Their mission is simple, make the best formula in the world. In our house, we never skim on family time together on the weekends. Instead of racing around crazy, we prioritize time at home, time to relax, time to do fun, crazy things that we wouldn't have ordinarily. And you know who else doesn't skim? By heart. By heart is the only American-made infant formula with globally sourced ingredients to use organic, grass-fed whole milk without a drop of skim. Whole milk is full of healthy fats like naturally occurring MFGM, which play an important role in baby's brain development and growth. Are you curious about ByHeart? Redeem your welcome offer at byheart.com slash podcast with code name Zibby20 for a limited time. Welcome to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, the podcast featuring interviews with writers of all types. Today's episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books has been sponsored by Nene's Treats. That's N-E-N-E-S treats.com, a family-owned and operated crumb cake business based in Charleston, South Carolina, which my in-laws have a little bit to do with. Uh, that's Nene's Treats.com. Get your crumb cakes on Nene's Treats.com or Gold Belly and enjoy. I'm here today with James Fry, who's the international best-selling author of sensational books, A Million Little Pieces, My Friend Leonard, Bright Shiny Morning, The Final Testament of the Holy Bible, and many others. He's the CEO and founder of Full Fathom 5, a transmedia company specializing in young adult fiction, which has produced the Lorien Legacy series and the Endgame books. He's written and produced multiple movies since his first film, Kissing a Fool, produced in 1998. Uh, his latest novel and his first adult novel in a decade, Katerina, was just released on September 11, 2018. James Fry has sold millions of copies of his books and in so doing has helped countless people through his stories of addiction and recovery. He currently lives in Connecticut with his wife and three children. So welcome, James. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. My pleasure. <laughs> I love moms. <laughs> so Katerina is your first adult novel in 10 years. Why this book and why now? Uh, first adult book in a long time. Um, so I had written four other adult books, and um, when I dreamed of becoming a writer as a 21-year-old, um, I dreamed of becoming a guy who wrote sort of controversial, polarizing, divisive books. And um, in 2011, I was on a tour for the Final Testament of the Holy Bible in Europe, um, and I woke up in some city, and I was just tired, right? I looked up at the ceiling, and... and um, the books I had written had sold a lot of copies. Three of the four had hit number one. Um, every dream I had had about being a writer had come true. And I was staring at the ceiling, and, and I just thought, I don't want to do this anymore. And so I didn't. Um, I, I started a company. We, uh, we publish books. We make movies and television shows and video games. I left New York City and moved out to Connecticut. Um... I just changed my life. And that was fun for a while, but I, 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 despite whatever successes that company had, over time I just got depressed. And I woke up 
a couple years, probably two years ago, one morning. Um, it wasn't an uncommon morning, but I woke up and I just wanted to die. I just wanted to drive my car into a tree. Um, and I would go to bed every night and want just want to take a bottle of Tylenol PM and not wake up. And I have this 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 therapist who's um, kind of he's a friend of mine now, but I have a very odd relationship with him where I just call him when I feel like it which sometimes is once a year and sometimes is twice a month. And I told him this, and he sort of laughed, and he goes, where are you right now, man? And I was like, I'm in Connecticut. He's like, in, at your big house? And I was like, yeah. He said, are you wearing your earrings? And I said, no, I have six earrings. I have three in each of my ears. He said, what kind of clothes are you wearing? He said, I'm wearing khakis and a polo shirt. He said, have you listened to any music real loud lately? I was like, no. He said, have you gotten any fights lately? I said, no. And he sort of laughed, and he goes, man, you want to you wanna drive into a tree because you, you've become a chump. You've become <laughs> everything you, you used to hate. You, 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 the, the, the version of you I knew, the person I knew for a long time, used to make fun of guys like you. Um, old, soft, washed-up guys. Um, he said, you need to put in some earrings and put on a white T-shirt and go listen to some punk rock and write a book. Um, he said, whatever, whatever you're doing now isn't making you happy, and it's not what you're supposed to be doing. You need to sit down and write a book. And I hung up the phone, and I thought about it, and he was right. I had sort of um, I had lost myself somehow, not in any terrible way. I just... I was doing things that, while fun and cool, weren't the things that made me happy. So I put in some earrings. I went to Claire's, that little cheesy store at the mall, bought some fake diamond earrings, and put on a white T-shirt and went to this little barn I have where I work and started writing a book, just honestly to see how it felt, and it felt good. And so I kept going, and, and, and Katerina is the book I wrote. So on that theme, you wrote in your book, um, in one of the opening scenes in L.A., <clears throat> how you were describing this whole lovely existence that you had, had you were having, the housekeeper, the gardeners, the pool, the cars, how you write all day, and they, you say, they give me stupid amounts of money. I do what they want and give them what they pay me for, and I hate myself. And when I stop long enough to think about what I'm doing and how I got where I am and how much I have and how much I've wasted, when I think about how lost I feel every second of every day, how completely fucking lost I am, and I feel I want to buy a gun and blow my fucking brains out, but I'm not brave enough for that. So I walk through my grass and I stare at my trees and I listen to the birds and I look at the ocean and the skyscrapers and I smile for my children and I sleep next to my wife and I pay my bills and I do my work and I hate myself every single minute of every single day, hate myself. Yeah, that's pretty depressing, right? It's so depressing. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's how, that's how I felt. A version of that is how I felt, and, and I guess that's how the character in the book feels. Wow. And how, how can you make sure now that you've gotten yourself out of that place not to return to it? Um, just to make sure I, I, that I don't just do things for money or I don't just do things because I get hired to do a job to make sure that I keep doing things that I love to do. Right. I, I wrote most of this book at night. Um, I kept doing the company. The company's still growing and thriving and, and publishing books and making movies and television shows and video games. Um, but it's not my sole focus anymore. I take time to make sure I, I, that I'm doing things that make me happy. 
um, that I'm working on things that have that, that I'm working on simply for the love of doing them, not um, because it's a job or because somebody's hired me or the company to do it. Um, a lot of this book, I would go to work and work at the company during the day, and then I would come home and have dinner with my wife and kids, and then they all go to bed. And I would write from 9.30 to 12.30, and even just having those three hours to myself to do something for the pure love of it um, made me really happy. And you say you don't edit or anything. You just keep going. You have one draft and that's it? Yeah, I write books kind of weird. I don't use outlines. Um, I, I write from beginning to end, so in a linear fashion. Um, I don't read the books. I only write one draft. So when I'm done, we send it to the publisher, we copy edit it, and it comes out. Um, yeah, I try to be as clean and precise and deliberate as possible the first time through. Awesome. And you also um, have a different take on even the language that you choose and how you use traditional punctuation and grammar in your, in your books, um, which is obvious from anybody who's ever picked up a book of yours. Um, but you say, instead of trying to write the right way, I started trying to write the wrong way. Grammar, how I felt like using it. Punctuation, how I felt like using it. Words in whatever way I pleased, putting them on the page however I fucking pleased. I had never lived my life according to rules and expectations. Why should I write according to them? Fuck them all. Yeah. <laughs> when I was trying to learn how to write a book, right? I, I, when I was 21, I decided I wanted to be a writer. Um, and it took me to 32 to publish a book. Um, so there were a lot of years when I was writing, and I, I didn't like what I was writing. It didn't feel right. I, I, it's one of these things where I, uh, during those years, I said, I don't know how I'm trying to learn how to write, but I'll know it when I see it, and I'll know it when I feel it. And for a long time, I was trying to write using traditional systems, traditional systems of punctuation and grammar, traditional systems of page layout, um, following the rules. And I started not using them, trying to get to some place where um, the words were set down in a way that they made me feel things. And that's ultimately the goal, like to string words together to make a reader feel something. And when I was doing it, I, I found that if I just ignored rules, if I put things down in a way that did make me feel the way I wanted to make a reader feel, it was more effective. And so I just rejected all of it. That I don't think, you know, I've always been more influenced by art than other books. And in art, there is a tradition of... Um, breaking rules. It's almost part of it that, that the progression of art is due to artists rejecting what has come before them and finding new ways to express themselves, whether it's through paint or some sculptural material or now video. Um, whereas in writing, you're taught, well, you need to do all of these certain things. And so I just said, fuck that. And I wrote the way it felt right to me. Um, and once I started doing that, I realized, like, yeah, this is what you're trying to do. That you don't have to do what people tell you to do just because they tell you to do it. Like, why do I have to use commas the way some guy tells me I have to? Fuck that. Um, and, and that, I think, is consistent in all the adult books I've written. They... they 
they are what they are. They they feel right, or they felt right when I was writing them. It's almost more like looking at a book of poetry in Katerina. Not all the chapters, but some of them. Even like the Facebook exchanges, it was. It looks much more like. I mean, I can't read it, but if you could see it, it's like very poetic the way you lay the words out on the page. And yeah, and I can't say I'm even trying to make poetry. Mm-hmm. It's just it's how it make the way I lay it out makes sense to me. It makes sense the way the story is being told. The way. You know, what you're referring to is there are long exchanges between two characters in the book via Facebook. They haven't seen each other in 25 years. They live uh, on the other side of the world from each other. Um, But they have these long conversations via Facebook. Um, And so how do you express that in a book in in as efficient um, and clean and simple a way as possible? And, and those things all mean things to me, like as a writer, being clean, being efficient, being simple, making sure the book moves, making sure a reader doesn't get bogged down in, um, in grammar and punctuation or, or structures, right? I want a reader, once they start reading my book, to be compulsively driven forward, um, to not want to stop. I want to keep them up. I say I want them turning pages as fast as they can go. And a lot of that is the books that I love the most had me turning pages as fast as I could go. Like which ones? I mean, Tropic of Cancer, um, On the Road. I love, like, old French books, Les Miserables and The Count of Monte Cristo, um, Bretty Sinellas. I can't say they do any of the things I do in terms of grammar, punctuation, and page layout, but the books move fast. Once you start reading them, you just keep going, or at least I did. And I think it's great how in Katerina, at the beginning, reading Tropic of Cancer is really what propelled you to move to Paris, and the rest of the story kind of moved on from there. And then when you're there, when you look at Manny's Olympia, for instance, and you have all these art references throughout the book, I feel like it's like... Did you do that on purpose? Is it your way of saying, like, this is my art, and here's art? It's like a... I mean, Katerina is kind of a book about becoming a writer, mm-hmm. right? Like, there's one... There, there, It has two timelines. One is 1992 France, and the other is 2017 Los Angeles. And um, it jumps back and forth. And the 1992 Paris part is the character moves to France to become a famous writer and falls in love. But a, a lot of it is about the process of becoming a writer and what his dreams are and how he wants to make them come true. Um, the character in 2017 Los Angeles has had all those dreams come true and is looking back and trying to figure out whether any of it was worth it or not. What did it cost? How much did it hurt? Um, and how great was it? Um, and so you're jumping back and forth between somebody who wants to do something and the per- person who did it. And, and, and yeah, part of it was I like, I like books about art and books and writing. Um, there, there used to be sort of a whole, I don't know if I'd call it a genre, but there, there were a lot of books about that. Hemingway did it. Kerouac did it. Charles Bukowski did it. Um, you've said you enjoy writing in the gray area between memoir and fiction. And 
when I picked up this book and it said a novel, it didn't even, this is probably my fault. At first, it didn't even occur to me that it was about you. I'm like, okay, this is totally a novel this time. Um, and I'm not asking for percentages, like, um, but, you know, you, you've said that your obligation more is to tell the truth as a writer and, um, like you're to be truthful to the art you're producing, not necessarily truthful to the history of what came before it. Um, and that Katarina's labeled as a novel, but you know, I wouldn't have known necessarily except for the book <laughs> talk you gave last night at book soup, but what went into this deciding whether or not you labeled this fiction or memoir? So when I sit down to write a book, I don't think about that. I, I don't sit down and say, okay, it's memoir time or it's novel time, or it's... I, I, I just don't. I just sit down to write the book. I, I say I have books inside me, and my job is to get them out. The process of writing is figuring out how to get what I feel is inside me onto pages. Um, and when I do that, I don't think about fiction versus nonfiction versus memoir versus whatever. I just write the book. And... Um, I do work in a gray area that's not really fiction and is not really nonfiction. It's again, it's it's an area. Plenty of people have worked on, worked in, from Rimbaud and Baudelaire to Fitzgerald Hemingway and Henry Miller to Jack Kerouac and Charles Bukowski. Um, as I wrote this book, I didn't think about it either. I just wanted to tell the story. Um, Given the history I have with memoir, um, I didn't want to do that again. And I like the idea that with A Million Little Pieces, people read it and all anybody wanted to try to do is figure out what in it wasn't true. And with this, it's clearly the same character. It's clearly the same story. It's clearly part of the same character's life. But publishing it as fiction, everyone would read it and try to figure out what was true. And the point is that it doesn't really make a difference. That yeah, I don't, I, I don't, I don't feel um, that I have any obligation or responsibility to fact when I'm making art. And as pretentious as it may sound, I say I try to make art with words. Um, and in that, my obligation is to to the book, to making the book. Um, the best experience possible for the reader to to move them to tell them a story to entertain them to make them feel love and pain and sorrow and elation um and that in the process of that those things those feelings that experience that's truth to me in a book um that truth is what i can make you feel um that fact is something else and my obligation is to truth. And, I, and, and in the process of trying to achieve it, I will manipulate, alter, change, enhance, diminish, do whatever I need to do um, without guilt, remorse, and apology. So in Katerina, I found it so interesting that you tell through the character about what happened with the Million Little Pieces controversy and your side of the story and how it ended up that you submitted it as fiction, they had you change it to memoir, all the self-hatred you had surrounding that period of time. Can you tell listeners who might not have read that part of Katerina yet about your side of the story for what happened back then? 
Um, I don't even know if it's my side of the story, right? Um, I mean, A Million Little Pieces was a book I wrote the same way I wrote this. I didn't really think about whether it should be memoir or fiction. The, the, the goal was to write the best book I could, to write a book that um, moved you and changed you and made you feel things deeply. When it was done and we were submitting it to publishers, we submitted it to publishers as a novel. And I thought of it in this tr- same tradition of all the people I just mentioned who wrote similar books or books that were similarly based upon their own lives. Um, when we sold it, there was a discussion about whether it should be a memoir or a novel. We decided to release it as a memoir. When uh, it came out, it was, okay, how do we publicize it? And it was just say it's all true. Everybody does that. Um, the book sold millions and millions of copies and um, and got investigated and, and sort of picked apart, and it wasn't all true. And I got hammered for that. And that's fine. I made the mistake of going out into the public and saying it was true, and that was wrong, and I did it. Um, and in and in many ways, it was a great gift and a great joy because it did make the dream come true. I became the most controversial, most notorious writer in the world. Um, and, in, and in other ways, it, it, it hurt. It was. It's not fun to have, you know... 500 news articles a day calling you nasty names. Um, And when you were asking about Katerina, looking back on it, like, that's what you don't think about when you have this dream. Like, I dreamed of being the most controversial writer in the world, and I, I, as I had the dream, I just imagined it would be fun. You don't imagine the, the cost of it, and that it does hurt, and that it is hard. And that if you want to keep doing it, you you have to be willing to pay that price. Um, I decided I was, so I did keep doing it. I kept working in that gray area between fact and fiction. Every book I've written is in that area, whether it was, you know, a million little pieces. Okay, we can't bubble wrap our kids to keep them safe, but we can give ourselves some peace of mind now with the Life 360 app, which I am obsessed with. I first heard about this from a girlfriend at a party who told me that this was the app to use, so I got it, and now I am obsessed. It's a family connection and safety app that lets you track the people and things that are most important to you, and it's much more than sharing location. It is about safety. It keeps families connected and protected throughout the day. Plus, it helps you find your things. So I have tiles, one of which I put on my phone, which I lose a hundred times a day, and I can find it through the app whenever I lose it. Also, it lets me put in locations of interest. So I get alerts when my kids reach school after taking the bus or when my husband gets to LA or whoever you want to track. You can do it with Life360 and feel very protected and safe and it makes life better. It makes peace of mind better. Life 360 has my family's back when they're on the road, and I can track their stuff too if I need to. Plus, of course, it's a lifeline during emergencies because you can have crash detection to know if one of the kids is in an accident and with two almost driver's license kids, that is super important to me too. So put away the bubble wrap and protect your loved ones with Life 360. Visit life360.com 
or download the app today and use code BOOKS, B-O-O-K-S, all caps, to get one month of the gold package for free, plus 15% off all tiles. That's life360.com, code BOOKS. My friend Leonard and Katerina, which are all sort of part of the greater a greater narrative that are tied together or Bright Shiny Morning or the Final Testament of the Holy Bible, they all sit in that world. Um, and, and, and for me, the, the only goal is to, to change a reader's life. Any book I write, I want them to open it and read it and be different when they're done with it, be irrevocably different. You say in the book um, that your character or you, when you were in Paris, it starts with that and goes throughout that you wanted to write books that burn the world down. And you go on to say, which is what you're basically saying right now, um, you want to write books that change people, how they think and feel and live, how they view the world, how they view themselves, books that confront uh, books that confront them, books that scare them, that make them either love the book or hate it, books that force people to take a position, that inspire people to either burn them or ban them or love them and defend them, books that divide, books that make the world irrevocably different than it was before they were written, books that make history because they changed the world. So do you, do you feel that you've accomplish this? I don't know. Do you feel I accomplished it? I think you did a great job. <laughs> but do you I think love I your accomplished books. that? I think you woke the world up, for sure. I think you caused the entire world to talk about you and your and your work. Um, I think you changed parts about the genre of, of fiction and nonfiction and the way you can tell a story, the way it looks, um, the way it sounds. Yeah, I mean, I think history will decide if I did it, right? I did it in the moment. I, I did it multiple times when books came out. I forced people to take positions on them. I, 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 I do think I changed how books are written and published. Um, history will decide if what I did was good or bad. For me, what matters is in 50 years, are the books still read? Will somebody still... I don't know what bookstores or reading culture will look like in 50 years, but um, are they still read? Um, It was fun. It was cool. It's still fun and cool. (laughs) Um, I don't want to write boring books. I don't want to write books that people can read and say, ah, that was okay. I want them to love it or I want them to hate it. Um, And I don't... I'm happy with either reaction. Um, I've had a fun career. It's been cool. I'm on the back end of it, but um, it's been fun and cool, and all my dreams came true, which um, has been amazing in all the best and all the worst ways. You've also really reached a lot of people with all of your writing about addiction and recovery. You told this beautiful story last night at the book reading about um, a couple that came up to you and named their child Lily James after the characters, um, or you and your girlfriend. Um, In this book, you talk a lot about alcohol addiction um, with really vivid, amazing detail. Um, At one point, you talked about, uh, in many points you were talking about, during the drinking and also the desire you had, the conflicting desire to stop but not be able to. And you said, every drink I take will move me closer to blackout, to loss, to the hell or walking unconsciousness, to the bliss of it. Every drink will further blur the edges until everything blurs, will make the world spin more and more and more, make every sound explode. Every drink I take will hasten the darkness, the loss of memory and control, 
The loss of humanity, every drink will further reduce me to a grunting, screaming madman. Every drink I take will hasten, hasten, hasten the loss. I reach this point every night, have this choice every night. I am aware that I make this choice every night. I am aware and I know, and every single fucking night I go there. Oblivion, desolation, rage, violence, idiocy, the unknown darkness, the darkest darkness, black. I know and I'm aware and I choose and I go. Oblivion and desolation and blackness, I go. It's pretty powerful. Yeah, I mean, that's the life of an active alcoholic, right? Every night you go to that place and you decide, do I want to go all the way or not? And for a long I guess not for a long time, but certainly for a period of time in my life, I went there every night. And that's how it felt to me. I, I would go different days. I would start drinking at different times, but certainly always when the sun was up. Um, and sometimes I would get to that place quickly, and sometimes I would get there a little less so. But every night, it was okay. I know what I'm doing. I know what's going to happen if I keep doing it. Am I going to? And I consistently said, yeah. I mean, that part of, part of, of, of addiction, I think, to anything is you're conscious of it, and you're conscious of the damage it's doing to yourself. And you are compelled to go there. Even though it's awful and even though you hate yourself, there's part of you that needs it to be awful and needs it. Need, you need to hate yourself or you can't stop it. Um, I've never read what you wrote, but it's pretty good, I think. <laughs> or what never, you wrote. <laughs> I've never read what you just read, but I think it's pretty good. It, it feels true to me. It feels true to what addiction was like to me. I was a fucking drunk, right? Um, but then you, you later you say, I tried to stop drinking. I'm tired and my body hurts and I'm throwing up constantly, sometimes with blood. I know I need a break. After 18 hours, I'm sweating and shaking and seeing shit I know isn't there and hearing shit I know isn't there and my heart feels like it's exploding. How did you eventually tame your alcoholism if you feel like it has been tamed or if it can ever truly be tamed? Um, I mean, I went to treatment. I got, I got sent away to rehab, Minnesota. Um, probably a year or so after the events of Katerina um, and I was just confronted with the fact that if I kept drinking I would die and I decided I didn't want to die who sent you away? Um, my parents you know I, was, I, I had come back to America and um, I was smoking crack and drinking every day and I had an accident and I busted up my face and I don't remember any of it and my parents took me to to Hazelden and dropped me off and 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 I'm lucky that I had parents who loved me enough and had the means to be able to do that and so I stayed at Hazelden for a while and when I got out it was okay you can go back and if you go back you'll probably die or or you can try to have a life and I decided to try to have a life. How did I stay sober? I don't know. Like, I just didn't drink. I, 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 I would reach out to friends. I would find ways to just not drink. You're compelled to drink, and you can find ways to arrest that compulsion. And, and I did. Sometimes I would go for a walk. Sometimes I would read a book. Sometimes I would go sit in a church. Sometimes I would call a friend. Um, there was no single 
method that was consistently effective. So whenever something stopped being effective, I would just try to find something else. But I've been sober for 25 years. I haven't had to drink in 25 years. I haven't done cocaine in 25 years. Um, Good for you. That's amazing. I know there are organizations like... Um, you know, my husband's friend Murphy Jensen has this thing called We Connect, where you have people all recovering um, from any addictions can have sort of a support system similar to an AA model. Did you find any organizations like that that were particularly helpful for you that might help listeners who might be going through something like that? I mean, I think AA is a beautiful thing. It's not. It wasn't effective method for me, but it, it has saved millions of lives. Um, I was never part of an organization. I'm a solitary guy. You know, we were talking earlier about breaking rules and not living or mm-hmm. writing or existing within traditional structures, and I, I don't do that as a sober guy either. I don't function well within a system of rules that I'm supposed to follow. I function best when I'm just figuring out shit myself. Um, certainly, I think AA is great. You know, churches can provide great comfort to people's souls, which is great. Um, Organizations like the one you just mentioned. I always say to people, like, it doesn't fucking matter how you do it. I don't give a fuck how you get sober or stay sober. It doesn't matter. All that matters is that you figure out a way, right? All that matters is that you get through the day without drinking or doing or consuming whatever chemicals um, you're addicted to. It doesn't matter how you do it. It just matters that you figure out some way to do it. Um, I, I've sort of changed things over the years. Like like I said a minute ago, when one thing proved to not comfort my soul in a way, I would seek out others. Um, you know, suicide hotlines are a good thing. Therapists are a good thing. It doesn't matter. What, whatever works, just find a fucking way. So your your kids are growing up now. You said your daughter's about fourteen. Or my oldest child is fourteen. Your oldest child is fourteen. I'm sure your kids are going to have to confront all sorts of substances and parties with alcohol. And like, have have you shared your whole story with them? How are you going to counsel them on how to approach all these things? Um, I haven't shared sort of the exact details. I mean, my children certainly, just from observation, can see that at parties. Most of the other adults consume alcohol, and I don't. Um, that's definitely been brought up. Why don't you drink, Daddy? And I just say, well, drinking isn't good for me. I don't. I don't. It doesn't make me feel good, and I don't handle it well. Um, as our oldest kid has gotten older, the questions have become more specific, and I just say, well, I had a problem where once I start drinking, I can't stop, so I don't do it anymore, and. I had to go to a hospital for a while to learn how to stop. And, you know, she's old enough where I said, you know, you will start to have people offer you things. And if, if you have questions about it, I'll always talk to you about it. I won't get mad at you. You won't be in trouble. But we should talk about it, that drugs and alcohol. I'm not somebody who thinks drugs and alcohol are all bad, like that they're terrible. Like plenty of people find... Um, fun in reasonable and responsible use of chemicals Um, but plenty of people don't so I just tell my daughter and I'll tell my other children when they're old enough like if you have questions please come talk to me you won't be in trouble 
um, and we'll see. I don't. I don't have a any great answer or plan. That's you know, like everything, you, you figure it out as you go. So this book um, was had a lot of very like graphically sexual scenes. I was reading this on the airplane. And I was like, oh my god, I'm like blushing. Like I hope people aren't looking over my shoulder. Look at all these words. Um, I feel was there were you, was this part of your I want to shock the reader I want to keep them pay, turning the pages that whole theory of like, sort of this intensity like uh, you know Fifty Shades of Grey on steroids type of thing. So um, graphic sex in the book? No, I, again I was just trying to tell the story. Right when I moved to Paris at twenty one, uh, I I I love sex and I sought it out a lot. And the particular relationship I write about happened to be very sexual. Um, the two characters fuck, and they enjoy it. Um, and so I wrote about it, and I wrote about it again in, in a way that felt like it was direct and efficient and effective in um, in telling the story of what was happening between these two people. I mean, I, I'm glad it made you blush. <laughs> um, I, uh, it's been interesting. Some people think I, I, I did a terrible job at it. Some people think it's great. But again, like, that that's what I want. Um, I want you to either be glued to the page or I want you to have to look away. Um, but sex is part of life, right? Especially in, in, in youth. When you're young and... Certainly, I, I guess maybe not everybody is this way, but when I was young, I moved to Paris to have every experience I could, every feeling I could. And sex was a big part of that experience. Um, last night at your reading, you were so, you seemed so openly, honestly grateful to all the readers for coming out, supporting you, enabling you to live your lifestyle, reading your books. And you just said it in such a, I hadn't heard another, I go to a lot of readings and I love listening to authors talk and I haven't heard that openness and gratitude, um, that felt very heartfelt to me. Um, do you always tell people that, do you tell me more about how you feel about so I'm your relationship old. I'm old leaders. now, right? I'm 40. We're not old. I'm 48 years old. Stop it. I feel old. I've had yeah. a long, full life. Um, and touring is hard. I don't, I don't, uh, this is the 11th city in the last 12 days I've been in. It's hard. Um, it's grueling. It's exhausting. Being on a plane as an old guy. You're not ma- old. Makes Stop your body it. hurt. Um, but I, I, I thank readers at readings, and I thank readers all the time on social media or, or in the world, um, because readers have given me this great gift, right? Um, if people don't read and buy my books, um, you know, having people read and buy my books was always my dream, and it, and it has come true because of readers. Um, the lifestyle I live, yes, the fact that I, I always say to readers, you literally pay my bills. I get paid to be a writer because people buy my books. Um, it's real gratitude, for sure. I think the the part of touring that I feel, I feel like I, ha- I have to tour because there are people who show up, right? We had a big crowd at Book Soup last night. Yeah, that's night. great. Um, 
And those people come because they spend their time and money with the work I produce. And as uh, I feel a responsibility to go out into the world and say thank you for that. It's not bullshit. It's very real. Um, And I love the readers. I always say I don't write for... I write for the readers. After myself, all that really matters to to me is how readers react to what I do. And the people who love it, I want to say thank you to them. Um, And I want them to really, truly know that it does mean something to me. that That I do deeply appreciate it. That I am grateful for it. That I do understand it's a gift. Like, I get to sit in a room alone and, and write stuff because of them. Um, and it is, I think, the responsibility of an author to make sure the fans and the readers know that. Um, yeah, I remember when I was a young writer, not published, I would go to readings. And when the writers weren't didn't understand that, it made me not like them. Mm. And it, it, it's not even about making people like me, but um, I was like, I'm never going to read a book by that dude again. Like, he was a dick. Like, does he not understand that I scheduled my whole day around coming here to see him? And if people are going to schedule their whole day around coming to see me, I'm going to try to make sure that it was worth it for them, that they have a fun experience, that they have a cool experience, and that they know how deeply I appreciate the fact that they showed up and that they read my shit and that they pay money for it. And that I have a cool life because they're willing to do that. I did a great job last night. Thanks. So check, check, <laughs> check that off the list. Um, my last question is: Do you have any advice to aspiring writers, or I even want to say aspiring artists, because I feel like you're you're both at this point. I mean, I, I always say to young writers or artists, like, don't be afraid to fail. I failed so much. I failed so much in my life. People don't know that and don't think about it. Um, I always use the example of A Million Little Pieces, right? It came out when I was 32, and it sold a a lot of copies. And people are like, oh, my God, you're an overnight success. What's that like? It must be amazing. And I'm like, I wrote six books that I threw away. It took me 11 years to get here. It was not overnight. You don't know how many times I failed. You don't know how many days I had where I was did not get anything done where I sat in front of the machine frozen where I I sat in front of the machine and wrote stuff that was bad Um, and I knew it was bad don't be afraid of failing and don't let failure stop you Um, don't be afraid of taking risks right like I remember when I sent about a hundred pages of a million little pieces to a friend of mine who had a MFA in creative writing from NYU and I was just curious what he thought of it. And he read it, and he called me. He was like, dude, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, it's my book. <laughs> and he said, no grammar, no punctuation. Like, this would get shredded in a workshop. And I was like, good. Good. Then I'm doing it right. You know, don't be afraid to take those risks. Don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to have people not like you, right? I think, I think especially in today's world, even more so than the old world, um, people care deeply about the opinions of people they don't know on social media and in the media, and it doesn't matter. 
like first be true to yourself and whatever it is you're trying to achieve and do, whether it's write a book or make a painting or do a podcast or whatever your medium is, be true to what you're trying to do. Um, and two, don't give a fuck. <laughs> if people don't like it or understand it or don't believe in it, um, yeah, just keep going. If anything in my life, if I have one thing I've learned in my life, it's just keep going. Whether it's in the process of trying to stay sober, whether it's in the process of trying to make art or books, um, whether it's in the process of dealing with, um, you know, difficult situations, public or private, just keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. I love that. Thank you. That was amazing. Thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. I love that you love books. I love that you're keeping the culture of books alive. Thank you. I love that you read books and you're interested in books. And thank you very much for having me. As uh-huh. corny as it sounds, like I said to readers, thank you. Uh-huh. Like you pay my bills and that means <laughs> something to me. Thank you. Thank you. Today's episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books has been sponsored by Nene's Treats, N E N E S Treats, Nene's Treats.com. You won't leave a crumb. Thank you.